Welcome to Volume 7 of Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit. Chapter 14 It's always a bit difficult to know just what to say on occasions like this. And I said, Oh, there you are, Stilton. Nice evening. But it seemed like the wrong thing, for he merely quivered, as if he had gotten a beetle down his back and increased the incandescence of his gaze. I saw that it was going to require quite a good deal of suavity and tact on my part to put us all to our ease. You are doubtless surprised, I began, but he held up a hand as if he had been back in the force directing traffic. He then spoke in a quiet if rumbling voice. You will find me waiting in the corridor, Worcester, he said and strode out. I understood the spirit which had prompted the words. It was the Chevalier in him coming to the surface. You can stop a cheese ride till he falls at the mouth, but you cannot make him forget that he is an old Etonian and a Puka Sahib. Old Etonians do not brawl in the presence of the other sex, nor do Puka Sahibs. They wait till they're alone with the body of the second part in some secluded nook. I thoroughly approved of this fineness of feeling, for it had left me sitting on top of the world. It would now, I saw, be possible for me to avoid anything in the nature of unpleasantness by executing one of those subtle rearward movements which great generals keep up their sleeves from moments when things are beginning to get too hot. You think you have got one of these generals cornered and are all ready to swoop on him, and it is with surprise and chagrin that just as you are pulling up your socks and putting a final polish on your weapons, you observe that he isn't there. He's withdrawn on his strategic railway, taking his troops with him. With that ladder waiting in readiness for me, I was in a similarly agreeable position. Corridors meant nothing to me. I didn't need to go into any corridors. All I had to do was slide through the window, place my foot on the top of the rung, and carry on with a light heart to terra firma. But there is one circumstance which can dish the greatest of generals, viz. if toddling along to the station to buy his ticket, he finds that since he last saw it, the strategic railway has been blown up. That is the time when you will find him scratching his head and chewing the lower lip. And it was a disaster of this nature that now dished me. Approaching the window and glancing out, I saw that the ladder was no longer there. At some point in the course of the recent conversations, it had vanished, leaving not a rack behind. What had become of it was a mystery I found myself unable to solve, but that was a thing that could be gone into later. At the moment it was plain that the cream of the Worcester brain must be given over to more urgent matters. To wit, the question of how I was going to get out of the room without passing through the door and finding myself alone in a confined space with Stilton, the last person in his present frame of mind with whom a man of slender physique would wish to be alone in confined spaces. I put this to Florence and she agreed, like Sherlock Holmes, that the problem was one which undoubtedly presented certain points of interest. You can't stay here all night, she said. I admitted the justice of this, but added that I didn't at the moment see what the dickens else I could do. You wouldn't care to notch our sheets and lower me to the ground with them. No, I wouldn't. Why don't you just jump? And smash myself to hash? You might not. On the other hand, I might. Well, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, can you? I gave her a look. Seemed to me the silliest thing I'd ever heard a girl say, and I've heard girls say some pretty silly things in my time. I was on the point of saying, you and your barley omelettes, when something seemed to go off with a pop in my brain, and it was as though I had swallowed a brimming dose of some invigorating tonic, 
the sort of pick-me-up that makes a bedridden invalid rise from his couch and dance the karaoke. Bertram was himself again. With a steady hand, I opened the door, and when Stilton advanced on me like a mass murderer about to do his stuff, I quelled him with the power of the human eye. Just a moment, Stilton, I said suavely. Before you give rein, if that's the expression I want, to your angry passions, don't forget you've drawn me in the drones club dart sweep. It was enough. Halting abruptly, as if he had walked into a lamppost, he stood goggling like a cat in an adage. Cats in adages, Jeeves tells me, let I dare not wait upon I would, and I could see with the naked eye that this is what Stilton was doing. Flicking a speck of dust from my sleeve and smiling a quiet smile, I proceeded to rub it in. You appreciate the position of affairs, I said. By drawing my name, you have set yourself apart from ordinary men. To make it clear to the meanest intelligence, I allude to yours, my dear cheese right. Where the ordinary men, seeing me strolling along Piccadilly, merely say, Ah, there goes Bertie Worcester. You, having drawn me in the sweep, say, There goes my fifty-six pounds ten shillings. And you probably run after me to tell me to be careful when crossing the street because the traffic nowadays is so dangerous. He raised a hand and fingered his chin. I could see that my words were not being wasted. Shooting my cuffs, I resumed. In what sort of condition shall I be to win that dance tourney and put nearly sixty quid in your pocket if you pull the strong arm stuff you are contemplating? Try that one on your bazooka, my dear cheese right. It was a tense struggle, of course, but it didn't last long. Reason did prevail. With a low grunt which spoke eloquently of the overwrought soul, he stepped back. And with a cheery, well, good night, old man, and a benevolent wave of the hand, I left him and made my way to my room. As I entered, Aunt Dahlia, in a maroon dressing gown, rose from the chair in which she had been sitting and fixed me with a blazing eye, struggling for utterance. Well, she said, choking on the word like a Pekingese on a chump chop too large for its frail strength, after which, speech failing her, she merely stood and goggled at me. I must say that this struck me in the cirques as a bit thick. I mean, if anybody was entitled to have blazing eyes and trouble with the vocal cords, it was, as I saw it, me. I mean, consider the facts. Owing to this woman's cloth-headed blundering when issuing divisional orders, I was slated to walk down the aisle with Florence Cray and had been subjected to an ordeal which might well have done permanent damage to the delicate nerve centres. I was strongly of the opinion that, so far from being glad at and gargled at, I was in a position to demand a categorical explanation to see that I got it. As I cleared my throat in order to put this to her, she mastered her emotions sufficiently to be able to speak. Well, she said, looking like a female minor prophet about to curse the sins of the people. May I trespass on your valuable time long enough to ask you what in the name of everything bloodsome you think you're playing at, young pie-faced Bertie? It is now some twenty minutes past one o'clock in the morning, and not a spot of action on your part. Do you expect me to sit up all night waiting for you to get around to a simple easy task which a crippled child of six could have done and washed up in a quarter of an hour? I suppose this is just the shank of the evening to you dissipated Londoners, but we rustics like to get our sleep. What's the idea? Why the delay? What on earth have you been doing all this while, you revolting young piece of cheese? I laughed, a hollow mirthless laugh. 
Getting quite the wrong angle on it, she begged me to postpone my farmyard imitations to a more suitable moment. I told myself that I must be calm. Calm. Before replying to your questions, aged relative, I said, holding myself in a strong effort, let me put one to you. Would you mind informing me in a few simple words why you told me that your window was the end one on the left? It is the end one on the left. Pardon me? Looking from the house. Oh, looking from the house. A great light dawned on me. I thought you meant looking at the house. Looking at the house, it would, of course, be... She broke off with a startled yowl, staring at me with quite a good deal of that wild surmise stuff. Don't tell me you went into the wrong room. It would scarcely have been wronger. Whose was it? Florence Cray's. She whistled. It was plain that the drama of the situation had not escaped her. Was she in bed? With a pink boudoir cap on. And she woke up and found you there? Almost immediately. I knocked over a table or something. She whistled again. You'll have to marry the girl. Quite. Though I doubt she would have you. I have positive information to the contrary. You fixed it up? She fixed it up. We are affianced. In spite of that moustache. Oh, she likes the moustache. She does. Morbid. But what about Cheese Wright? I thought he and she were affianced, as you call it. No longer, it's off. They've bust up? Completely. And now she's taken you on? That's right. A look of concern came into her face, despite the occasional brusqueness of her manner and the fruity name she sees fit to call me from time to time. She loves me dearly, and my well-being is very near to her heart. She's pretty highbrow for you, isn't she, Bertie? If I know her, she'll have you reading W.H. Alden before you can say what ho. She rather hinted at such a contingency, though, if I recollect, T.S. Eliot was the name that she mentioned. She proposes to mould you, then. I gather so. You won't like that. No. She nodded understandingly. Men don't. I attribute my own happy marriage to the fact that I have never so much as laid a finger on old Tom. Agatha is trying to mould Warpleston, and I believe his agonies are frightful. She made him knock off smoking the other day, and he behaves like a cinnamon bear with its foot in a trap. Has Florence told you to knock off smoking? Not yet. She will, and after that it will be cocktails. She gazed at me with a good deal of, what do you call it? You can see that remorse had her in its grip. I'm afraid I've got you into a bit of a jam, my puppet. Don't give it a thought, old blood relation, I said. These things happen. It is your predicament, not mine, that's exercising me. We've got to get you out of your sea of troubles, as Jeeves calls it. Everything else is relatively unimportant. My thoughts of self are merely in about the proportion of the vermouth to gin and a strongish dry martini. She was plainly touched, unless I'm very much mistaken. Her eyes were wet with unshed tears. That's very altruistic of you, Bertie, dear. Not at all, not at all. One wouldn't think it to look at you, but you have a noble soul. Who wouldn't think it to look at me? And if that's the way you feel, all I can say is that it does you credit. Let's get going. 
You'd better go and shift that ladder to the right window. You mean the left window? Let's just call it the correct window. I braced myself to break the bad news. Ah, I said, what you're overlooking, possibly because I forgot to tell you, is that a snag has arisen which threatens to do our aims and objects a bit of no good. The ladder isn't there. Where? Under the right window. Perhaps I should say the wrong window. When I looked out, it was gone. Nonsense. Ladders don't melt into thin air. They do, I assure you. At Brinkley Court, Brinkley comes Snarsfield in the marsh. I don't know what conditions prevail elsewhere, but at Brinkley Court they vanish if you take your eyes off them for so much as an instant. You mean the latter's disappeared? That is precisely the point I'm endeavouring to establish. It has folded its tents like the Arabs and silently stolen away. She turned bright mauve, and I think she was about to wrap out something in the nature of a cord and pitchly expletive, for she's a woman who seldom minces her words when stirred. But at this juncture the door opened and Uncle Tom came in. I was too distraught to be able to discern whether or not he was pottering, but a glance was enough to show me he was definitely all of a doodah. Dahlia, he exclaimed, I thought I heard your voice. What are you doing up at this hour? Bertie had a headache, replied the old relative, a quick thinker. I've been giving him an aspirin. They head a little better now, Bertie. One note's a slight improvement, I assured her, being a quick thinker myself. You're out and about a bit late, aren't you, Uncle Tom? Yes, said Aunt Dahlia. What are you doing up at this hour, my old, for better and for worser? You ought to have been asleep ages ago. Uncle Tom shook his head, his air grave. Asleep, old girl? I shan't get any sleep tonight. Far too worried. The place is alive with burglars. Burglars? What gives you that idea? I haven't seen any burglars. Have you, Bertie? Not one. I remember thinking how odd it was. You probably saw an owl or something, Tom. I saw a ladder when I was taking my stroll in the garden before going to bed, propped up against one of the windows. I took it away in the nick of time. A minute later and burglars would have been streaming up it in their thousands. Aunt Dahlia and I exchanged a glance. I think we were both feeling happier now that the mystery of the vanishing ladder had been solved. It's an odd thing, but however much of an aficionado one may be of mysteries in book form, when they pop up in real life they seldom fail to give one the pip. She endeavoured to soothe his agitation. Probably just a ladder one of the gardeners was using and forgot to put back where it belonged. Though of course... She went on thoughtfully, feeling no doubt that a spot of paving the way would do no harm. I suppose there's always a chance of a cracksman having a try for that valuable pearl necklace of mine. I had forgotten that. Well, I hadn't, said Uncle Tom. It was the first thing I thought of. I went straight to your room and got it and locked it up in the safe in the hall. A burglar will have to be pretty smart to get it out of there. He added with modest pride and pushed off, leaving behind him what I have sometimes heard called a pregnant silence. Aunt looked at Nephew, and Nephew looked at Aunt. Hell's whiskers, said the former, starting the conversation going again. Now what do we do? Well, the situation was sticky. Indeed, offhand, it was difficult to see how it could have been any more glutinous. What are our chances of finding out the combination? Not a hope. I wonder if Jeeves can crack a safe. She brightened. 
I'll bet he can. There's nothing Jeeves can't do. Go and fetch him. My lord loved a duck impatiently. How the dickens can I fetch him? I don't know which room he's in. Do you? No. Well, I can't go from door to door, rousing the whole domestic staff. Who do you think I am? Paul Revere? I paused for a reply, and as I did so, who should come through the door but Jeeves in person? Late though it was, the hour had reduced the man. Excuse me, sir. He said. I am happy to find that I have not interrupted your slumbers. I ventured to come to inquire whether matters had developed satisfactorily. Were you successful in your enterprise, sir? I shook the coconut. No, Jeeves. I moved in a mysterious way, my wonders to perform, but was impeded by a number of acts of God. In a few crisp words, I put him abreast. So the necklace is now in the safe, I concluded. And the problem, as I see it, and as Aunt Dahlia sees it, is how the dickens to get it out. You grasp the position? Yes, sir. It is disturbing. Aunt Dahlia uttered a passionate cry. Don't do it! She boomed with extraordinary vehemence. If I hear that word disturbing once more, can you bust a safe, Jeeves? No, madam. Don't say no, madam, in that casual way. How do you know you can't? It requires a specialised education and upbringing, madam. Then I'm for it, said Aunt Dahlia, making for the door. Her face was grim and set. She might have been a marquise, about to hop into the tumbrel at the time when there was all that unpleasantness over in France. You weren't through the San Francisco earthquake, were you, Jeeves? No, madam. I have never visited the western coastal towns of the United States. I was only thinking that if you had been, what's going to happen tomorrow when this Lord Sitcup arrives and tells Tom the awful truth would have reminded you of that quake. Well, good night all. I'll be running along and getting my beauty sleep. She buzzed off, a gallant figure. The corn trains its daughters well. No weakness there. In the fell clutch of circumstances, as I remember G's putting it once, they do not wince or cry aloud. I mentioned this to him as the door closed, and he agreed that it was substantially so. Under the tiddly palms or whatever it is. How does the rest of it go, Jeeves? Under the bludgeonings of chance, their heads are, pardon me, bloodied but unbowed, sir. That's right. Your own? No, sir. The late William Ernest Henley, 1849 to 1903. Ah! The title of the poem is Invictus, but I did understand Mrs. Travers to say that Lord Sitcup is expected, sir. He arrives tomorrow. Would he be the gentleman of whom you were speaking who is to examine Mrs. Travers' necklace? That's the chap. Then I would fancy that all is well, sir. I started. It seemed to me that I must have misunderstood him. Either that or he was talking through his hat. All is well, did you say, Jeeves? Yes, sir. You are not aware who Lord Sidcup is, sir? I've never heard of him in my life. You will possibly remember him as Mr. Roderick Spode, sir. I stared at him. You could have knocked me down with a toothpick. Roderick Spode? Yes, sir. You mean the Roderick Spode of Totley Towers? Precisely, sir. He recently succeeded to the title on the demise of the late Lord Sidcup, his uncle. Great Scott, Jeeves! Yes, sir. 
I think you will agree with me, sir, that in these circumstances, the problem of confronting Mrs. Travers is susceptible to a ready solution. A word to his lordship reminding him of the fact that he sells ladies' underclothing under the trade name of Eulalia Soares would go far toward inducing him to preserve a tactful silence with regard to the spurious nature of the necklace. At the time of our visit to Totley Towers, you will recollect that Mr. Spode, as he was then, showed unmistakably his reluctance to let the matter become generally known, sir. He got Jeeves! Yes, sir. I thought I would mention it, sir. Good night, sir. And he used off! Chapter 15 We Worcesters are never very early risers, and the sun was highish in the heavens next morning when I woke to greet a new day. And I had just finished tucking away refreshing scrambled eggs and coffee when the door opened as if a hurricane had hit it and Aunt Dahlia came pirouetting in. I use the word pirouetting advisedly, for there was an elasticity in her bearing which impressed itself immediately upon the eye. Of the drooping mourner of last night there remained no trace. The woman was plainly right above herself. Bertie, she said after a brief opening speech, in the course of which she described me as a lazy young hound, or to be ashamed of wallowing in bed on what, if you asked her, was the maddest, merriest day of the glad new year. I've been talking to Jeeves, and if ever a life-saving friend in need drew breath, it is he. Hats off to Jeeves is the way I look at it. Pausing for a moment to voice the view that my moustache was an offence against God and man, but that she saw in it nothing that a good weed killer couldn't cure, she resumed. He tells me this Lord Sitcup, who's coming here today, is none other than our old pal Roderick Spode. I nodded. I had divined from her exuberance that he must have been spilling the big news to her. Correct, I said. Apparently, all unknown to us, Spode was right from the start the secret nephew of the holder of the title. And since that sojourn of ours to Totley Towers, the latter has gone to reside with the Morning Stars, giving him a step up. Jeeves has also, I take it, told you about Eulalia Soares. The whole thing. Why didn't you ever let me in on that? You know how I enjoy a good laugh. I spread the hands in a dignified gesture, upsetting the coffee pot, which was fortunately empty. My lips were sealed. You and your lips. All right, me and my lips, but I repeat... The information was imparted to me in confidence. You could have told Auntie. I shook my head. Women do not understand these things. Noblesse oblige means nothing to the gentler sex. One does not impart confidential confidences, even to aunties. Not if one is a confidant of the right sort. Well, anyway, I now have the facts, and I held Spode, alias Sidcup, in the hollow of my hand. Bless my soul. She went on, a far-off ecstatic look on her face. How well I remember that day at Totley Towers. There he was, advancing on you with glittering eyes and foam-flecked lips, and you drew yourself up, as cool as some cucumbers, as Anatole would say, and you said, One minute, Spode, just one minute. It may interest you to learn that I know all about you, Laylee. Gosh, how I admired you. I don't wonder. You were like one of those lion tamers in circuses who defy murderous man-eating monarchs of the jungle. There was a resemblance, no doubt. And how he wilted. 
I've never seen anything like it. Before my eyes, he wilted like a wet sock. And he's going to do it again when he gets here this evening. You propose to draw him aside and tell him you know his guilty secret? Exactly. Strongly recommending him when Tom shows him the necklace to say it's a lovely bit of work and worth every penny he paid for it. It can't fail. Fancy him owning you Laylee's sores. He must make a packet out of it. I was in there last month, buying some cami knickers, and the place was doing a roaring trade. Money pouring in like a tidal wave. By the way, laddie, talking of cami knickers, Florence was showing me hers just now. Not the one she had on, I don't mean, her reserve supply. She wanted my opinion of them. And I'm sorry to tell you, my poor lamb. She said, eyeing me with atly pity, that things look pretty serious in that quarter. They do? Extremely serious. She's all set to start those wedding bells ringing out. Somewhere around next November, she thinks. At St. George's, Hanover Square. Already she's speaking freely of bridesmaids and caterers. She paused and looked at me in a surprised sort of way. You don't seem very upset, she said. Are you one of those men of chilled steel one reads about? I spread the hands again, this time without disaster to the breakfast tray. Well, I'll tell you, old ancestor, when a fellow has been engaged as often as I have, and each time saved from the scaffold at the eleventh hour, he comes to have faith in his star. He feels that all is not lost till they have actually got him at the altar rails with the organ playing, Oh, perfect love, and the clergyman saying, Wilt thou? At the moment, admittedly, I'm in the soup, but it may well be that in God's good time it will be granted to me to emerge unscathed from the terrain. You don't despair? Not at all. I have high hopes that, after they have thought things over, these two proud spirits, who have parted brass rags, will come together and be reconciled, thus letting me out. The rift was due to— I know, she told me to the fact that Stilton learned that I had taken Florence to the mottled oyster one night about a week ago, and he refused to believe that I had done so merely in order to enable her to accumulate atmosphere for her new book. When he has cooled off and reason has returned to its throne, he may realize how mistaken he was and beg her to forgive him for his low suspicions. I think so. Well, I hope so. She agreed with me that there was something in this, and commended me for my spirit, which in her opinion was the right one. My intrepidity reminded her, she said, of the Spartans of Thermopylae, wherever that may be. But he's a long way from being in that frame of mind at the moment, according to Florence. She says he is convinced that you two were on an unbridled toot together, and of course his finding you in the cupboard in her bedroom at one in the morning was unfortunate. Most. One would gladly have avoided the occurrence. Must have given the man quite a start. What beats me is why he didn't hammer the stuffing out of you. I should have thought that would have been his first move. I smiled quietly. He's drawn me in the drones club dart sweep. What has that got to do with it? My dear old soul, does a fellow hammer the stuffing out of a chap on whose virtuosity at darts he stands to win fifty-six pounds ten shillings? Oh, I see. So did Stilton. I made the position thoroughly clear to him, and he has ceased to be a menace. 
However much his thoughts may drift in the direction of stuffing hammering, he will have to continue to maintain non-belligerent status of a mild cat in an adage. I have him bottled up good and proper. There was nothing further you wished to discuss? Not that I know of. Then if you will withdraw, I will be getting up and dressing. I rose from the hay as the door closed, and having bathed and shaved and clad the outer man, took my cigarette out for a stroll in the grounds and massages. The sun was now a good bit higher in the heavens than when last observed, and its genial warmth increased the optimism of my mood. Thinking of Stilton and the dead stammy I had him in, I found myself feeling that it was not such a bad little old world after all. I don't know anything that braces you more thoroughly than outgeneraling one of the base's sort who has been chucking his weight about and planning to start something. It was with much the same quiet satisfaction that I had experienced when bending Roderick's bow to my will at Totley Towers that I contemplated Stilton in his bottled-up state. As Aunt Dahlia had said, quite the lion tamer. True, as against this, there was Florence. Already it appeared speaking freely of bridesmaids, caterers, and St. George's Hanover Square, and a lesser man might have allowed her dark shadow to cloud his feeling of bientre, but... It is always the policy of the Worcesters to count their blessings one by one, and I concentrated my attention exclusively on the bright side of the picture, telling myself that even if an eleventh-hour reprieve failed to materialise and I was compelled to drain the bitter cup, I wouldn't have to do it with two black eyes and a fractured spine. Wedding presents from G. Darcy Cheesewright. Come what may, I was that much ahead of the game. I was, in short, in buoyant mood and practically saying tra-la when I observed Jeeves shimmering up in the manner of one desiring an audience. Oh, hello, Jeeves, I said. Nice morning. Extremely agreeable, sir. Did you want to see me about something? Yes, sir, if you could spare a moment. I was anxious to ascertain if it would be possible for you to dispense with my services today in order that I may go to London, the junior Ganymede luncheon, sir. I thought that was next week. The date has been put forward to accommodate Sir Everard Everett's butler, who leaves with his employer tomorrow for the United States of America. Sir Everard is assuming his duties as Britannic ambassador in Washington. Is that so? Good luck to the old blister. Yes, sir. One likes to see these public servants bustling about and earning their salaries. Yes, sir. If one is a taxpayer, I mean, contributing one's whack to those salaries. Precisely, sir. I should be glad if you could see your way to allowing me to attend the function, sir. As I informed you, I am taking the chair. Well, of course. When he puts it like that, I have no option but to write ho. Certainly, Jeeves, push along and revel to your rib squeak. It may be your last chance, I added significantly. Sir? Well, you've often stressed how fussy the brass hats are about members not revealing the secrets of the club book. And Aunt Dahlia tells me you've been spilling the whole inner story of Spode and Eulalia Sauce to her. Won't they drum you out if this becomes known? The contingency is a remote one, sir, and I gladly took the risk, knowing that Mrs. Travers' happiness was at stake. Pretty white of you, Jeeves. Thank you, sir. I endeavour to give satisfaction. And now I think perhaps if you will excuse me, sir, I should be starting for the station. The train for London leaves very shortly. Why not drive up in the two-seater? If you could spare it, sir. Of course. Thank you very much, sir. 
It will be a great convenience. He pushed off in the direction of the house, no doubt to go and get the bowler hat, which is his inseparable companion when in the metropolis, and scarcely had he left me when I heard my name called in a bleating voice, and turned to perceive Percy Gorringe approaching, his tortoise shell rimmed spectacles glistening in the sunshine. My first emotion on beholding him was one of surprise, a feeling that, of all the in and out performers I never met, he was the most unpredictable. I mean, you couldn't tell from one minute to the next what aspect he was going to present to the world, for he switched from stormy to set fair and from set fair to stormy like a barometer with something wrong with his works. At dinner on the previous night he had been all gaiety and effervescence, and here he was now, only a few hours later, once more giving that impersonation of a dead codfish which had caused Aunt Dahlia to take so strong a line with him. Fixing me with his lacklustre eyes, if lacklustre is the word that I mean, and wasting no time on preliminary pip-pips and poor pilars, he started straight off cleansing his bosom of the perilous stuff that weighed upon his heart. Worcester, he said, Florence has just told me a story that shocked me. Well, difficult to know what to say to that, of course. One's impulse was to ask what story, adding that if it was the one about the bishop and the lady snake charmer, one had heard it. And one could no doubt have shoved in a thoughtful word or two deploring the growing laxity of speech of the modern girl. I merely said, Oh, yes, and waited for further details. His eye, as Florence's had done on the previous night, rolled in a fine frenzy and glanced from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. You can see the thing had upset him. Shortly after breakfast, he continued, retrieving the eye and fixing it on me once more. Finding her alone in the herbaceous border cutting flowers, I hastened up and asked if I might be allowed to hold the basket. Very civil of you. She thanked me and said she would be glad if I would do so, and for a while we talked of neutral subjects. One topic led to another, and eventually I asked her to be my wife. Atta boy! I beg your pardon. I only said atta boy! Why did you say atta boy? Sort of cheering you on, as it were. I see, cheering me on. The expression is a corruption, one assumes, of the phrase, that is the boy, as signifies friendly encouragement? That's right! Then I am surprised in the circumstances, and I may say more than a little disgusted to hear it coming from your lips, Worcester. It would have been in better taste to have refrained from cheap taunts and jeers. Eh? If you have triumphed, that is no reason why you should mock those who have been less fortunate. I'm sorry if you could give me a few footnotes. He tissed-tissed impatiently. I told you that I asked Florence to be my wife, and I also told you that she said something which shocked me profoundly. It was that she was engaged to you. I got it now. I saw what he was driving at. Oh, yes, yes, of course, quite. Yes, we would appear to be betrothed. When did this happen, Worcester? Oh, fairly recently. He snorted. Very recently, I should imagine, seeing that it was only yesterday that she was engaged to Cheese Wright. It's all most confusing, said Percy peevishly. It makes one's head swim. One doesn't know where one is. I can see his point. Bit of a mix-up, I agreed. It's bewildering. I cannot think what she can possibly see in you. No, very odd, the whole thing. He brooded darkly a while. 
her recent infatuation for Cheese Ride, he said teeing off again. One could dimly understand, whatever his mental defects, he is a vigorous young animal, and it is not uncommon to find girls of intellect attracted to vigorous young animals. Bernard Shaw made this the basis of his early novel, Cashel Byron's Profession. But you, it's inexplicable. A mere weedy butterfly. Would you call me a weedy butterfly? If you can think of a better description, I shall be happy to hear it. I'm unable to discern in you the slightest vestige of charm, the smallest trace of any quality that could reasonably be expected to appeal to a girl like Florence. It amazes me that she would wish to have you permanently about the house. I don't know if you would call me a touchy man. As a rule, I should say not. But it is not pleasant to find yourself chalked upon the slate as a weedy butterfly. And I confess that I spoke a little shortly. Well, there it is, I said, and went into the silence. And as he too seemed disciplined for chit-chat, we stood for some moments like a couple of Trappist monks who have run into each other by chance at the dog races. And I think I would pretty soon have knotted curtly and removed myself, had he not arrested me with an exclamation similar in tone and volume to one which Stilton had uttered on finding me festooned with hat-boxes in Florence's cupboard. He was looking at me through the windshields with what appeared to be concern, if not horror. It puzzled me. It couldn't have taken him all this time, I felt, to notice the mustache. Worcester, good gracious, you're not wearing a hat. I didn't much in the country. But in this hot sun, you might get sunstroke. You ought not take such risks. I must say I was touched by his solicitude. Much of the pique I had been feeling left me. It isn't many fellows, I mean to say, who get all worked up about the well-being of birds who are virtually strangers. It just showed, I thought, that a man may talk a lot of rot about weedy butterflies and still have a tender heart beneath what I should imagine was a pretty generally recognized as a fairly repulsive exterior. Don't worry, I said, soothing his alarm. But I do worry. He responded sharply. I feel very strongly that you ought either to get a hat or else stay in the shade. I don't want to appear fussy, but your health is naturally a matter of greatest concern to me. You see, I have drawn you in the drone's club dart sweep. This went right past me. I can make nothing of it. It sounded to me like straight delirium. You've what? What do you mean you've drawn me in the drone's club dart sweep? I put it badly. I was agitated. What I should have said was that I have bought you from Cheeseright. He sold me the ticket bearing your name. So can you wonder that it makes me nervous when I see you going about in this hot sun without a hat? In a career liberally spotted with nasty shocks, I have had occasion to do quite a bit of reeling and tottering from time to time, but I have seldom reeled and tottered more heartily than I did on hearing those frightful words. I had addressed Aunt Dahlia earlier in the morning, if you remember, as a fluttering aspen. The description would have fitted me at this moment like paper on the wall. The surge of emotion will, I think, be readily understood. My whole foreign policy, as I have made clear, had been built on the fact that I had bottled Stilton up good and proper, and now it appeared, dash it, that I hadn't bottled him up at all. He was once more in the position of an Assyrian fully licensed to come down like a wolf on the fold with his cohorts all gleaming with purple and gold, and the realization that his thirst for vengeance was so pronounced that rather than forego his war aims, he was prepared to sacrifice fifty-six quid and a bender was one that froze the marrow. 
There must be a lot of hidden good in Cheese Right. Proceed it, Percy! I frankly confess that I misjudged him, and if I had not already returned the galley proofs, I would withdraw that Caliban at Sunset thing of mine from Parnassus. He tells me that you are a certain winner of this darts contest, and yet he voluntarily offered to sell me, for quite a trivial sum, the ticket bearing your name, because he said he had taken a great fancy to me and would like to do me a good turn. A big, generous, warm-hearted gesture, and one that restores one's faith in human nature. By the way, Cheesewright is looking for you. He wants to see you about something. He repeated his advice with ref to that hat and moved off. And for quite a while I stood where I was, rigid to the last limb, my numbed being trying to grapple with this hideous problem which had arisen. It was plain that some diabolically clever counter-move would have to be made, and made quickly. But what diabolically clever counter-move? There was what is called the rub. You see, it wasn't as if I could just leg it from the danger zone, which was what I would have liked to have done. It was imperative that I be among those present at Brinkley Court when Spode arrived this evening. Early though Aunt Dahlia had spoken of making the man play ball, it was quite conceivable the program might blow a fuse, in which event the presence on the spot of a quick-thinking nephew would be of the essence. The Worcesters do not desert ants in time of need. Eliminating, therefore, the wings of the dove for which I would gladly have been in the market, what other course presented itself? I freely owned that for five minutes or so the thing had me stuckered. But it has often been said of Bertram Worcester that in moments of intense peril he has an uncanny knack of getting inspiration, and this happened now. Suddenly a thought came like a full-blown rose, flushing the brow, and I picked up the feet and lit out for the stables, where my two-seater was housed. It might be the Chiefs had not yet started on the long trail that led to the Junior Ganymede Club, and if he hadn't, I saw the way out.